bless you can be seated. Some doubt his birth was of a virgin. Some think his miracles can be explained away. Some say that he was just a good man. That even if he died, he wasn't really raised. Skeptics rise. Speak their lies. Truth is marching on. There will always be cynics and scoffers. Faith has always had its noisy enemies. They may rise up, but for a moment. Yet we see evidence through the centuries. Jesus Christ, the way, the life. Truth is marching on. Truth has always been marching on. Truth marched on through the preaching of the apostles who withstood by uh, onslaughts of ridicule and persecution as they blazed the gospel westward from Jerusalem in the first century. Truth marched on through the flames of the Protestant Reformation, bringing the light truths that we believe today, that the Bible is the word of God alone, and that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God alone, Salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. Those truths that have been buried through the dark ages were brought to light once again in great fashion. Truth marched across the Atlantic in the founding, I believe, of our country. And pilgrims brought with them the precious pages of the Bible as a new country was formed on the basis of the word of God. And in this country... Truth marched on through three different awakenings, bringing revival and ushering thousands of people both on the East Coast and millions of people on the East Coast and even on the Western frontier from this country and many other countries. Truth has marched on from our shores to the, to the land of mission fields around the globe. Truth is still today marching on, is it not? I meant to show a picture this morning of our Mayport campus over uh, in the Mayport area. Just one year ago from this time, uh, Pastor Aaron went over there, and there were eight people there, and three of them have moved on. Five people in a church that was about to collapse. And today, or last Sunday, 57 people in attendance, and people literally being saved every month. And, and just an extraordinary work, folks. Truth is marching on. Always has been, is, and always will be. And here's what we know. What we know is truth will continue to march on to the very end when God puts his exclamation point on history. And when we open up Revelation chapter number 10, we see this very, very plainly. Now, there is a lot going on in Revelation chapter number 11. When we ended Revelation chapter 10 last time, remember what happened. John received the little scroll and he was told by God to eat the scroll and that the scroll was going to be sweet in his mouth but bitter in his stomach. And it was a, a picture that the remainder of Revelation, which is the seventh trumpet and the seven seal judgments, is going to be a, one of the most highly volatile moments in human history. It's when God 
brings it all to an end. Remember, John was to internalize this message, and then John was to take this message and proclaim it to all the peoples of the earth. And then when you open up chapter number 11, you say you see the most demonstrable, visible picture of witnessing in the last days by the two witnesses of the book of Revelation. Now, this is a highly speculative chapter. There's lots of discussion and debate among Bible scholars about what certain meanings are. And so I want to, before I really get into the meat of chapter 11, I want to kind of set the stage for you of what's going on here because this is probably the most significant chapter so far as it relates to the tribulation and, according to one Bible scholar, probably the most difficult to interpret of all the 22 chapters of the book. With that being said, I want you to look at verses 1 and 2, and I want to set the stage for you for just a minute. The Bible says here, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Now this reed that is spoken of in verse 1 was a common measuring tactic in the first century. A lot of times people would take a reed, like a bamboo-type reed, uh, a stick, if you will, and they would line it up with something they were trying to measure, and they would actually break it off and form a stick that had a certain measurement to it, and they would use that as a means to measure. Now, I believe in verses 1 and 2, the, 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 the commandment to measure the, the temple of Jerusalem is certainly metaphoric. I don't believe that God is saying to them, literally go out and measure the length and the depth and the height and so on and so forth. He's saying, I want you to go, and I want you to essentially see what is happening in this temple and who is in this temple, and who is against this temple. I don't want you to get caught up so much in that part of verses 1 and 2, but you do need to get caught up in this part of verses 1 and 2. What is most obvious in verses 1 and 2 that would be missed by the naked eye is this. There is a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. Now, why is that significant? It is significant because right now, there is not a temple in Jerusalem that, where there is worship. But listen very carefully. There will be a temple in the city of Jerusalem where Jews will begin to re-worship God with sacrifices in the last days. Now, right now, I want you to get a picture of your, in your mind of the city of Jerusalem. Now, if any of you have ever seen a picture of the city of Jerusalem or you've ever been to the city of Jerusalem, more than likely you have this image in your mind. And, and you may or may not know this building in the center of this picture in the old city of Jerusalem is called the Dome of the Rock. Now, what is significant about the Dome of the Rock is it's actually an Islamic shrine. In the center of the city of Jerusalem, the most identifiable picture of the city Right in the middle of it is, of course, an Islamic shrine. What you may also not know about this Islamic shrine is that it sits right now today, right on the actual spot where the old temple was and where the Jews are planning to rebuild the new temple in the future. In fact, uh, there is an organization called the Temple Institute. They're live in Israel right now. And these are some of the renderings of the new temple that they have already sketched out to the specifications of the Bible. Listen very carefully. There is coming a day when that Dome of the Rock is going to be decimated and God's people are going to build a temple again on that spot. Now you say, 
Uh, this is really far-fetched, Brian. It's not really far-fetched if you think about what's happening in Israel right now. Do you actually think it's far-fetched that Israel might be completely fed up with the terrorist organizations around them that are doing irreputable damage? They've already went into the, 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 the West Bank and destroyed places of worship. It would take one rocket, it would take one bomb, it would take one act of aggression to completely wipe out the Dome of the Rock. And in this hostile environment, folks, I'd be surprised if we didn't get out of church today to find out that Israel took out the Dome of the Rock. Now, when the Dome of the Rock goes out, Israel is going to reoccupy that area and they are going to build this temple again. Now, most people, most Bible scholars believe that the temple will be rebuilt in the first half of the tribulation when the Antichrist makes peace with Israel. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he allows them to worship like this in the tribulation period. Now, this is a further piece of information about the Temple Institute that I find fascinating. They have already begun building artifacts, furnishings, and sacrificial animals for the reinstating of temple worship. In fact, uh, if you look here, that in the middle is a red heifer. According to the book of Deuteronomy, this specific animal is the only acceptable animal for specific sacrifices. And unless that animal has been built or, or, or has been recreated, there is no possibility to do sacrifices that are pleasing to God in the Jewish mind. Well, right there is a red heifer that the Temple Institute has raised up. If you look on your right, you see the menorah or the lampstand that goes in the temple. This is the exact lampstand the exact specifications it is setting in the Temple Institute today. I mean, if they opened up the temple tomorrow, that lampstand would go right in there and be used just like God said it would be used. Then you look over here on your left. Probably the most beautiful artifact that they've recreated is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubim over the lid facing one another with their wings covering that Ark. Folks, listen. The exact artifacts and the exact specifications right now while we are sitting in church are being recreated, are being remade, and at literally the snap of a finger, Israel could walk in there and rebuild its temple and begin worship once again that one day, watch this, will literally be the center of the universe, the center of the city of Jerusalem, and the very center of the tribulation period. In fact, when you look at verse number 2, it says this. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, this would be been called the court of the Gentiles. And why is God saying, do not measure them? And here's the answer. For they, watch this, will tread the holy city underfoot for 40 Two months. Now, 42 months, of course, is three and a half years. And then you look in the next verse, verse 3, it says that the two witnesses are going to prophesy, watch this, 1,260 days. What is 1,260 days? Roughly three and a half years. Now, you got to remember, we do not operate on the same calendar here in the West as they do there today. So these days are perfectly matched up with the calendar of those people that would be there. Mark this down. There is something significant about three and a half years in Revelation chapter number 11. And what is significant about Revelation chapter 11 and the three and a half years is this is a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Folks, you got to hear this. 
the seven-year period of the tribulation will be divided into two equal parts of three and a half years. The first three and a half years will be a time of peace. Remember Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2, the man rode down on the white horse from heaven promising peace. That was the Antichrist. Folks, listen, the first three year and a half years of the tribulation are not going to look much different than what we're seeing today. There's enough tribulation and difficulty in those first three and a half years. It will look similar to some of the suffering and pain that people are experiencing all around the world. But then something significant is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period. And I want you to listen to God speak for himself. Listen to Daniel chapter number 7 and verse number 25 that says this. He shall speak words against the Most High. Excuse me. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Watch this. Speaking of the Antichrist. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one that makes it desolate, even until the consummation or the ending, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. What's it saying there? Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel of peace. They can worship in their new temple. Because he says they can. But then at three and a half years in the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to enter into the temple. He is going to end the sacrifices of Israel. He is going to set in the throne of the temple, and he is going to be worshipped as God. Listen to Daniel chapter, or excuse me, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse number 11, I think is next. And from that time, the daily sacrifice is taken away. Speaking again of the rebuilt temple sacrifice. And the abomination of desolation is set up. That is the Antichrist entering in, offering false sacrifices and receiving false worship. And it says here, there shall be 1,290 days again, three and a half years. Matthew chapter 24 talks about this in verse number 15 when it says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet of Daniel standing in the holy place... Whoever reads him, let him understand. Then let all those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's going to happen when the Antichrist steps into the temple and begins to receive worship? He is going to have an all-out attack and assault on the people of God. He is going to be ruling this world, and anybody and everybody who worships God and tries to sacrifice to God is going to be, as it says, trodden under the foot of of the Antichrist. And then first, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say this. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless there is a falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now mark it down. Revelation chapter 11, we are literally in the center of the tribulation period, the three and a half year mark. The Antichrist has allowed Israel to worship up to this point. Then at the three and a half year mark, he is going to enter into the temple. He's going to force Israel to stop worshiping God. And then he's going to set in the temple as God. And he is going to expect that everybody begins to worship him except for those people who are sold out to God and continue to preach his word even to their death. And that, my friends, is where the two witnesses come in. Because in verse number three, the Bible says, and, it, and I will at that time give my power to two witnesses, and they will preach 1,000 
260 days clothed in sackcloth. And basically what happens here is after the abomination of desolation, God is going to allow his two witnesses to come and be empowered. They are going to preach the word of God. Can you just see him? I, mean, I just got this visual standing right outside of the temple saying, there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That guy in that temple right now is a fake. He is a phony. He is a false prophet. He's not from God. Can you just see this? Can you hear this? And for three and a half years, these dudes stand and preach against everything that Antichrist is doing. Now, folks, truth will march on all the way to the end. And there are a few things I want you to see about this in Revelation chapter 11. Number one, I want you to see God's protection is promised to his servants. God's protection is promised to his servants. In verses 4 and following, we learn a little bit about these two witnesses. Look, if you want verse number 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of earth. Obviously... The first thing that comes up in interpreting this passage is who are these two witnesses? And there's much speculation. In fact, Paige Patterson, one of my favorite commentators on the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, says there are at least seven common interpretation streams of what it looks like uh, 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 who these two witnesses may be. And folks, I'm going to tell you, nobody is going to be absolutely certain. If God wanted you to know who they were, he'd have just told you these are the two witnesses. So let me give you my two possibilities here, and they're closely related. One, I believe it could be Moses and Elijah. And the reason I believe it, is, it could be Moses and Elijah is for two reasons. Number one, because God is focused on Israel again in the tribulation. The miracles and the judgment pronouncements from his prophets are flowing freely again. In fact, look, if you will, at verse uh, number six. It says, these have the power to shut heaven so that rain, no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Well, who is the guy in the Old Testament that pronounced there be no rain uh, in Israel for three and a half years? And the answer is, of course, Elijah. Look at the next phrase. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. Who is the guy? that was led by God to strike the earth with plagues, including a plague of turning water into blood. That would be who? Moses. So Elijah and Moses represent two men of God that represent the law and represent the preaching of judgment against apostate Israel in the Old Testament. And so uh, some people suggest, because of that, that Elijah and Moses are in focus here. And I could live with that. The only reason that I don't have to live with that is because God did not force me to live with that. So let me give you a second option. It could very well be that these are two witnesses who never lived before. Two witnesses that God raises up in the tribulation period and two witnesses who minister like, preach like, and function like Elijah and Moses did in the Old Testament. You say, well, which one is it, preacher? For crying out loud, you should know by now I'm not going to tell you, okay, because I don't know. But I tend to lean toward the last one. I tend to think if God, if it was Elijah and Moses, God had just told us it was Elijah and Moses. But it would not be shocking to me that God would raise up two people just like Elijah and Moses to preach in the tribulation period. Now back up to verse number five, if you want to skip that unintentionally. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. 
And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now, some suggest that this is literal. That, that literally the two witnesses breathe out fire from their mouth like dragons and just burn up people in front of them who, you know, who stand against them. I, I'm inclined to believe that this is a representation of the fiery judgment of God that is pronounced by these prophets that is fulfilled in actuality against those to whom they pronounce judges. For instance, in Acts chapter number 5, you see this. You see that God used Peter to announce a judgment of death upon Ananias and Sapphira. He said it was going to happen, and it happened. In fact, uh, 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 over in the book, I believe it's a mark of the apostles, it is said, whoever sins you remit, they'll be remitted. Whoever sins you forgive, they'll be forgiven. Meaning, your message has the authority from God to be preached to forgive sins, but also to be preached to condemn those who turn away from God. The bottom line is this, folks. Regardless if it's real or if it's an image, the truth of the matter is God's preachers who preach God's word have the authority to make pronouncements of judgment from God and from his word. And that is really hard to swallow in this generation. It's even going to be harder to swallow in the tribulation period. So who are the witnesses? I believe two men who are raised up like Moses and Elijah to preach and announce prophetic judgment upon the world at that time. Now, I love this part. How will these witnesses minister? Well, notice back in verse number 3, it says, I gave my power to my two witnesses. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God. This is essentially a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 4. Listen to this. In verse number 4, it says this, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man and said this, What do you see? And he said, I see a lampstand of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, the menorah, like the one I just showed you. And he said, I saw two olive trees by it, on one on the right hand, the other on its left. The image that God was giving there is this, that these lampstands will be receiving continual oil from the olive branches into the menorah to light their flame. And, and, and in Zechariah chapter 4, that passage is concluded by saying this, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Now folks, I know you may have heard in the past uh, that, that there's no Holy Spirit activity in the tribulation period. I believe there's no Holy Spirit activity through his church like it is today. But make no mistake about it. The Holy Spirit will still be empowering his witness, will still be bringing his judgment and authority through these witnesses in this last day. And here's what I love about this whole thing. These witnesses are under the protective care of God. You know, the Witness Security Program was authorized by the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970. The U.S. Marshal Services, listen to this, has protected, relocated, and given new identities to more than 19,000 witnesses and their family members since the beginning of its program in 1971. Witnesses and their families typically get new identities, funding for basic living expenses and medical care, job training, and employment assistance may also be provided. Listen to this. The U.S. Marshal Service provides 24-hour-a-day protection for these witnesses. We call it the Witness Protection Plan. But listen to this. No witness security program participant that follows program guidelines 
has been harmed or killed while under the protection of the U.S. Marshal Services. That is extraordinary. And believe me, if the U.S. Marshals can care for those in Whitsack, then I'm here to tell you the Lord Jesus Christ will care for his witnesses in the tribulation period. Lottie Moon said it like this, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. Folks, you can hang your head high and you can leave this place today and you can be the faithful witness that God wants you to be. You are under the protective hand of Almighty God. Are you hearing me today? I'm saying there is no place too dangerous. There is no person too hard that can stop what God is doing. You say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Wait a second. You stopped in verse 6. Verse 7 tells me that somehow the protection must have got let up. Well, let me circle around to that thought in just a minute, but let me bring up the second point of this sermon. Number one, God protects, uh, his protection is promised to his witnesses. Number two, Satan's opposition comes against his servants. Look at verse seven. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, remember what I just said a few minutes ago. They are under God's absolute protection. I'm going to circle back to that in just a minute. But look what happens here. What happens here is the beast gets fed up with the message of the prophets. And he, what does he do? He authorizes their execution in verse number 7. Now let me take a pause here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. If you want to hear more about this, you're just going to have to come back to church in a couple weeks, okay? This beast in verse number 7 is the first time out of 36 times the word beast is going to be used from Revelation 11 to Revelation 19. So let me give you in short order who the beast is. He is the Antichrist. We're going to learn more about him in chapter 13, but here's the bottom line. The same man that walks into the temple and receives worship as God is going to go nuclear on these two witnesses. He's going to get fed up with it. He's going to be done with it. He's going to be tired of it. He is going to, as verse 3 says, listen, trample, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 2, he's going to trample the, uh, the holy city underfoot. That is his depravity. That is what this man is going to do. He and those who follow him will set themselves against God and his people and all those who profess the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew chapter 10 verse 22 says we can look forward to. You will be hated of all men for my sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. In fact, in verse number 8, look at this. This gets worse. Not only does he kill them, but verse 8 says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now we know this is literally Jerusalem for that last phrase. But notice that. It's called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Can, I, can you think of anything that would be more offensive to the Israelites than to say that you are like Egypt and you are like Sodom? This apostate city has welcomed the Antichrist, has welcomed his worship, and now he has murdered, literally, the, three, uh, the, the, the two witnesses, and their bodies are lying dead in the street for three and a half days without a burial. You talk about barbaric. These people are barbarists. Shameless execution. Then look at verse, look at verse, uh, uh, verse 9. It says, And those peoples from the tribes, tongue, and nations will see 
their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the grave. How is everybody in the world going to see these two dead bodies in Jerusalem? Have you ever heard of TikTok? This is not hard to imagine. There will be millions and millions and hundreds of millions of views within seconds. And some psychopath, no doubt, is going to set his iPhone 16 up on a stand and live it on TikTok as long as they're. Can you just imagine? Just like these crazy people that watch the zoo animals give birth. Y'all are psycho, okay? If you sit around and watch YouTube for like some zebra to give birth to a, another zebra, Look, you got problems, okay? If that's what you do with your life, you got more problems than I'll ever be able to fix, okay? But I can just imagine some crazy, wild, psychotic people literally live streaming in just to look at dead bodies. And look at verse number 10. It says this, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts one to another. It's going to become a national holiday. It's going to be like Christmas. The wicked witnesses are dead. Let's party, everybody, because all they did was get in our business and tell us we were wrong and tell us our religion was false. We're glad these people are dead. Did you just get a visual from the Wizard of Oz that the wicked witch is dead? That's the picture. That's the celebration that I see. So wicked, so vile, so evil, celebrating literally dead witness day. Now guys, listen, this second part of the message should not be too hard for you to follow except for the fact that sometimes we get our minds so narrowly focused on America as if America is the only thing going on in the world. In 2023, 6,000 Christians that we know of on record were martyred for their faith. 5,000 churches were bombed and vandalized over the faith. And it's not just in places like North Korea and Afghanistan. It's now happening in Europe where just, what, 200 years ago, the Christian faith was the most thriving and dynamic thing in Europe in the 1800s. And look at what we're experiencing today in our country. Christian phobia is a real thing. It's actually, uh, 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 there's books written about it where people hate Christianity and Christians so badly that they will do everything that they can do to destroy their churches, destroy their, their businesses and their relationships. Folks, I, I recognize that we are Christianity light in America. Let's just admit it. Y'all didn't like that, did you? That's okay, I'll rewind it one more time. So take it down with a cup of water here. We are Christianity light. You want to know where the real Christians are right now? They're in Iran. They're in China. They're in Korea. Suffering. Meeting not in beautiful buildings with padded chairs and air conditioning. Not with screens and medias and loud music. They're meeting privately and singing without uttering words because if the government hears them, they're going to get shut down and imprisoned. They are being drugged out of their churches and beaten and killed for the gospel's sake, and they keep on going. And what do we do? Every time one little thing rubs me odd in a church, I'm going to go look for another church. God help us. What's wrong with us? We are the softest, weakest generation of believers that have ever existed on planet Earth. So I know it's kind of hard for us to imagine people being drugged out on the street and killed and videoed, but folks, it's coming one day. And while Satan's opposition roars against the church now, it will roar louder in the tribulation. But let me give you the final thought of this message, and that's this. God honors the service of his witnesses. Amen. Look, if you will, at verse 11. 
This is great. You talk about Hollywood has nothing on this video. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. There is a resurrection. In verse 12, there's an ascension. Y'all ain't even listened to me, I don't think. Look at verse 12. And they heard, y'all are still caught up on what I said five minutes ago, okay? You're going to have to forgive me. Let's get past that. Let's look at verse 11 and 12, and let's rejoice in this. God's witnesses who were killed, watch this. The ones that were killed, and verse 11 says they're going to be resurrected, and verse 12 says they are going to ascend. Who does that remind you of? Who is the one that kicked out the ends of the grave and rose up three days after they buried him in this same town? Who is the one that 40 days later ascended up on high into the clouds? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the first fruits of us all. I'm circling back to my question that I asked before point two. How does God fulfill his promise to protect his servants? Because even death can't keep down his people. They will be resurrected and they will ascend to their Lord. Nothing, nothing can stop a child of God whose Lord will resurrect him one day and he will ascend to his father and so shall we ever be. Somebody better say amen right now. That right there was worth the price of admission to church today. But then in verses 13 and 14, we see this. He's going to vindicate them. In verse 13, we see in the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In that earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven, indicating their coming to faith. Then verse number 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, I'm going to wrap this. I want you to listen very carefully. What's going to happen next week? By the way, next week is only four verses. It doesn't mean the sermon is going to be any shorter. It just means there's four verses, okay? What happens in the next verse? Verse 15, the seventh trumpet sounds. And God's kingdom comes. And then we go forward and we see that final few judgments from the seals, or the bowls, excuse me. So next week we're going to learn about God's kingdom coming in this final act of judgment to destroy his enemies in the six seals. Bowls, excuse me. And then he's going to establish his kingdom. And the end will be coming soon. That final woe spoken of in verse 14 is the final bold judgments. The final half of the half of the half of the tribulation. Friend, I got two predominant messages for you as I close. Number one, God's got your back and your witness. We challenged you last week, okay? We challenged you last week and we take that and, and, and we, we want to activate that going into this year. But number two, I'm just here to tell you, friend, listen, listen to me very carefully. We have seen demonstrated just in the last two or three years how quickly, how gullibly our nation will follow a government, will follow people to promise them protection, financial security. Do not think for one second that this naive and gullible culture, this shallow religious culture that we live in today, will not follow the Antichrist as he promises peace, as he promises financial security, as he promises food and health and, 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 and preservation. Friend, I'm here to tell you, if you won't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you'll believe something. 
And I am convinced that those people who have had a chance and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ presented clearly to them in this age when the rapture comes and the Antichrist is established, they will have a delusion sent on them. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They will have a delusion put on them. They will believe a lie. And I will tell you, like I've told you so many times in this church, and I'll never stop doing it, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ before it is eternally too late. Let's bow for prayer. We're going to worship in a moment. We're also going to observe the Lord's Supper, which I'm excited about. We'll be in a little overtime today. I know you wouldn't mind that if it happens in the football game, so we'll just do it in church for a minute. I want to ask you this question. Church, I want to ask you this. Are you, are you where you need to be with the Lord? It's your relationship with Him. Are you going to start this year off right? We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute. I want to ask you to Clear your heart, clear your mind, make things right with people. Don't drink this cup and eat this bread unworthily. Just take a moment and pray. You can do it in your seat. Maybe you need to grab your wife's hand, your husband's hand, and just say, let's pray about something. <clears throat> but let me encourage you about this. If you are here and you are lost and <clears throat> without God in your life, some of this stuff is frightening to you. I want to urge you. If you have never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, to do it today, to do it right now. Just right there, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can do it from the comfort of your seat between you and God, because that's all that matters, you and God. Are you in a relationship with God? Do you have eternal life? Have you trusted Christ alone? For your salvation. If not, I'm inviting you right now to open up your heart just like you would the front door of your house and welcome Jesus into your life. And I'm gonna help you do that. If you've never prayed and accepted Jesus as your Savior, I'm gonna encourage you to do it right now. I'm gonna pray a prayer. You can follow along with me. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it in the quietness of your heart. God knows and God sees. So, right now, where you are and you wanna be saved, you want a relationship with God you want to know Jesus, then just call out to him like this. Dear Jesus. Just go ahead. Do it like that. Dear Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. But I believe in Jesus. I believe he died and rose again. Today, I accept you as my only Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me. Help me not to be ashamed of you. Now, before I close in prayer and we sing a song before the Lord's Supper, is there somebody in this room, young or old, man or woman, First time in church or been here a long time, you say, Preacher, I just prayed that prayer. I meant it. I'm so glad that I did. I just asked Jesus to be my Savior. If that's you, would you lift up your hand just so I could see you? Preacher, I prayed that prayer a minute. I'm so glad that I did. Pray for me, Preacher. I, wanna, I want you to know I did that. 
We want to help you and pray for you in any way that we can. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's worship this final song today if we could.